right, come on back. Here we go. Um, if you would open up to Mark chapter 8. Um, we are continuing on in our series this semester. We've been hanging out in the book of Mark um, and looking at Jesus and his life in the Galilee, which some of you have heard me say is one of my favorite places in the whole world. I hope that some of you will come and walk with Ben and I there someday. Um, some of you have already done that, but I love the Galilee and I love that we're learning about Jesus and his life in this place. So tonight we're gonna do that again, looking at Mark chapter eight. And before we do that, I just wanna pray. So would you guys pray with me one more time? Jesus, we're grateful um, for so many things. We're grateful to be here in this room tonight uh, with friends. We're grateful for a warm room on a cold night. Um, we're grateful that you know what we need as we come into this space tonight. So Jesus, I pray that you would meet us, that you would bring good news to us if that's what we need tonight. Um, would you bring hope if that's what we need tonight? Would you bring peace if that's what we need? God, I pray that you'd open our, our ears and our minds and our hearts to the things that you want to speak. God, I pray that my words would be from you. Whatever you want me to say tonight, God, I, I pray that's what would come out. And most of all, I pray, God, that your voice would be the loudest one in the room. So come, Lord Jesus, we invite you. And pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, I know we're close to Thanksgiving, but I need your brains to walk with me tonight a little bit to get where we're going to go. Can we do it? There's some really cool pieces of this story, and we're going to land in an awesome place, but I need your help and kind of turn your brain on, and we're going to dive in. Are you guys ready? Ready to go? Okay, look at Mark chapter 8, and you can follow along. I'm going to read Mark 8, 1 through 10. <clears throat> During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, how many of you guys were here last week? How many of you guys heard Ben talk about the feeding of the 5,000 last week? How many of you are like, this is a little familiar, what's going on here, right? Okay, so um, we're going to talk about that, and there's a reason that Mark is telling us this story again. Okay, so we're going to kind of unpack some stuff. There's some building blocks to get there, but, but I think it's going to be kind of cool. So to do that, of course, I'm going to show you a map. Um, if you have this map, you can pull it out, but you can also look up here. This is the map we've been looking at as we kind of walk through the series this semester of the Galilee region. Um, and I just want to walk you through a few events that get us up to the point where we start in Mark 8, verse 1. 
Okay, so I'm just going to walk you through a couple things. It starts in Mark 6, and I actually took this map and drew all over it today to help you understand. I've had lots of practice with stick figures, drawing with my boys and stuff, so it's cool. Um, so the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6 that Ben talked about last week happens right here in the religious triangle. Do you guys remember who lives in the religious triangle? The religious Jews. Awesome. After the feeding of the 5,000, disciples get in the boat. This is my boat right over here. Do you like it? Um, they get in the boat, and they try to go across to Bethsaida, and the winds rise, and they're struggling, and this is when Jesus walks out on the water to them, and the water's calm, but the wind blows the boat back, and they land over here in Gennesaret. Um, again, still in the religious area, the Pharisees show up and start to ask Jesus questions, like, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Now, could be hygienics, but actually... The Jews had lots of laws. The religious Jews had lots of laws to live by. Most of them found in the Torah, which for the Jews is the first five books of the Old Testament. The religious Jews had lots of strict laws, and if you were a Gentile, you didn't follow those laws. And as a Jew, if you didn't follow those laws, you were unclean. So here's the problem. If you're a Gentile, you're unclean to the Jewish people, and Jews did not associate with Gentiles. Because if Jews hung out with Gentiles who were not keeping the law, they were not clean themselves by association. Okay, so there's this separation, especially during the time of Jesus, between Jews and Gentiles. Now, who's a Gentile? A Gentile is anyone who's not of Jewish descent. So if you're in the room tonight and you are not Jewish, don't have Jewish ethnicity, um, you're a Gentile. Okay, so if you lived during the time of Jesus, you would have been kept separate from the Jewish people and considered unclean during that time. So this debate happens in Mark 7. After this debate, Jesus leaves the religious triangle and he walks with his disciples all the way up to the region of Tyre, way off the map, north of the land of Israel, Gentile territory. Land of the pagan people. No Jews are living there. It's pagan territory. He goes there and he heals someone. And then after he leaves there, he makes a very long journey all the way back down into this region. Anybody remember what it's called if you can't read it? The Decapolis. And who lives in the Decapolis? Sinners. <laughs> okay. Well, I might, <laughs> I might argue that they're all sinners. But in the Decapolis specifically were Greek cities and pagan people, Gentiles, lived in the Decapolis. So we see Jesus traveling into Gentile territory. Now, what is a Jewish rabbi, a good Jewish rabbi doing, taking his disciples into Gentile territory, healing people, touching people, becoming unclean himself, and then taking them to another Gentile territory? By the way, he gets to the Decapolis, heals someone right away, What's going on here? Okay, there's something that we need to figure out. Now, if you look back at Mark chapter 8, which we're now caught back up to our story tonight, look at verse 1. This is awesome. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Now, where are we again? In the Decapolis. Why is a large crowd of pagan Gentiles gathering when Jesus shows up? Why do they want to see him? Why do they want to hear from him? What do they want from him? How do they know who he is? Okay, turn back to Mark chapter 5, because a few weeks ago, Ben talked about a guy that Jesus encountered the last time he was in the Decapolis. Does anyone remember who it is? The what? 
Yes, the demon-possessed man. Remember, he was possessed by a legion of demons, and Jesus frees him from those demons and sends them where? Do you remember? Into the pigs, and the pigs go and drown themselves into the sea, right? This is what happened last time. Um, And don't you kind of wonder what the disciples are thinking? Like, last time we were in the Decapolis, some crazy stuff went down. Like, what's going to happen this time? And by the way, our parents told us never to come here. Right? And Jesus is bringing them into Gentile pagan territory. What is going to happen? You kind of imagine what's going through their minds. But look at Mark chapter 5, starting with verse 18. This is awesome. Remember, this is the demon-possessed man after he's healed. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. So flip back over to Mark chapter 8, and you get to verse 1. Jesus shows up in the Decapolis, and guess what? Everybody comes. Why? Because they heard. How did they hear? Because the guy went and told his story. Right? Jesus said, no, don't come with me. I want you to go home. I want you to go into Gentile territory and tell what the Lord has done for you. You guys, tell your story. Your story matters. It worked, (laughs) right? Three chapters later, a whole crowd of people shows up because this guy went and told his story of all that God had done for him. It's so awesome. So tell your story. We're not kidding when we say that to you. Your story matters and can have an impact you have no idea about. So we could go on for that for a while, but Leave that there. At first glance, you can, are we back in Mark 8? Yes, we are. Okay. At first glance, tonight's story seems very repetitive from what Ben talked about last week, right? But what we're going to do is compare them. We've already discovered that this story takes place in a completely different place with a completely different group of people, right? The feeding of the 5,000 with the religious Jews and the religious triangle. Now this feeding that Mark gives us in chapter 8 is in the Decapolis among the Gentiles, the unclean people. What's going on here? Um, so we're going to compare the two and see if this helps. Um, before we do this, one thing I want to say. When you're reading the Bible, it's really tempting to come across details that you don't understand and just kind of like fly by them, right? Especially with numbers, So when you see and read numbers in the Bible, pay attention. Ask good questions. Why is that number there? What does that mean? What is the story trying to tell me with these numbers? And what do I need to pay attention? Sometimes it's to help you learn something, and sometimes it's to help you remember something that has happened in the past, maybe in the biblical story. Okay, so pay attention to numbers. So we're going to do that tonight. And just by memory, we're not even going to look at it. You guys have heard these two stories I want you to tell me what numbers you hear. We'll start with the first one. In Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. I'll give you one. What numbers do you hear? What do you remember? Five. What else? Two. So five loaves, two fish. What else? Twelve baskets left over at the end. Okay, 5,000 people. They sit in groups of hundreds and fifties. But those are the significant ones. Five loaves, two fish, 5,000 people. 12 baskets left over. Okay, how about the feeding of the 4,000? What numbers did you hear? Seven. Seven loaves and what else? Seven baskets left over. So what is going on with this? Look at Mark 8 and go down to verse 18. 
Because actually, the disciples are also trying to figure out what is going on. And if you look at verse 18, this is what Jesus says to them. Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? So everybody clear? We got it now, right? Okay. What's going on here? So we know from this story that there's 12 baskets in the 5,000, seven baskets in the 4,000 story. I just want to remind you here, there's a point in the text in John chapter 6 where Jesus says of himself, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is feeding bread to these two very different people groups. We collect 12 baskets over here and seven baskets over here. What is going on? I want you to flip to the next book, the book of Luke, and go to chapter 2. You're going to hear a lot of Luke 2 in the next few weeks because this gives the story of the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, right? And when Jesus was eight days old and his parents brought him to the temple to be presented, there was a prophet there that spoke some words about this baby Jesus, okay? And we're going to read those right now. So look at Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ or before he had seen the Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation." which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon is saying this prophecy over Jesus, over the Messiah, saying, yes, you're the promised Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for for hundreds, thousands of years, but you're also going to be a light, and a revelation to the Gentiles. What's going on here? We're going to go to the Old Testament, to another prophecy about the Messiah. So I want you to go to the book of Isaiah. If you can find Psalms, which is kind of in the middle, and go to the right a few chapters or a few books, you'll find the book of Isaiah. And I want you to find Isaiah chapter 49. These are more words of prophecy about the coming Messiah. Remember, written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Hundreds of years. 
thousands of years, actually, before Jesus was born. So, look at chapter 49, verse 6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. What is Jesus making clear? What is he starting to reveal in these two stories in Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 8? He feeds 5,000 people in the religious triangle as the bread of life. There's 12 baskets left over. Jesus, the Messiah, bringing hope and life and restoration, salvation to the people of Israel. But he goes into Gentile territory to the pagans and feeds them from seven loaves, and seven loaves are collected, representing the seven pagan nations. This is really interesting. You can just jot this down in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. Actually, I read this to you, and I want you to count how many nations you hear. Are you ready? When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. The number seven in the Bible represented the seven pagan nations that were in the land before Israel. So you've got 12 baskets representing 12 tribes of Israel, the people of Israel. And you've got seven baskets representing the seven pagan nations. And you have Jesus, the bread of life, offering bread to both of these people. Basically, what's happening is the bread of life had come to bring salvation to the Jews, but he'd also brought salvation to the Gentiles. Remember, we, most of us in this room, are Gentiles. The gates giving eternity to God's people had just been blown open to all people. A story that might help us understand a little better. In 2004, I took my first trip overseas, my first trip to the land of Israel, and on the way there, we had an overnight layover in Istanbul, Turkey. Um, so we got there sometime in the day, and our guide took us to the Istanbul Museum because we had some time, and we're really, like, jet-lagged and just flew across the world, like, where the heck are we? And we go into this museum that, by the way, the section we were going into wasn't even open. So for some reason, lots of it had been shut down, hadn't been open for a long time. But somehow he knew a guy that had a key and got us into this room. So we go into this dark room in this museum that obviously no one had been in for quite a while, um, kind of eerie, kind of weird. And we walk through all these, like, ancient artifacts many of them from the land of Israel, some from other places, and we're kind of wandering through this museum, and then we come to this stone. And our guide literally brings us to this stone and has us sit down, our whole group of 50 of us, in front of the stone. And I want to show you a picture of it. I think. There it is. So this is the actual stone. I took this picture, 2004, with an actual camera. It was like before I had a camera on my phone. That's cool. Um... But we're standing in front of this stone. This stone was found in excavations from the temple area in Jerusalem. Okay, it's one of two that they found. There's another one that's in the Jerusalem Museum that's only partial, but this one is complete. 
And it was found in Jerusalem near the Temple Mount. Now, what you need to understand is that during the time of Jesus, the temple stood in Jerusalem. And this was the place where God's presence dwelt. This is where he lived among his people. I'm going to show you a picture of a reconstruction. This is just a model that's actually in Jerusalem now, but it's a model you can kind of walk around and understand what it looked like during the time of Jesus. So what you're looking at here is the temple itself. And then you've got different courts around the temple where different people are allowed to go, where different types of worship happen, where sacrifices happen for sin and all kinds of that stuff. Um, But what I want you to see is on the outside, there's a little wall right here and right over here. Can you see that? Sort of back there? Can you see the wall? Okay. This wall actually goes all the way around the temple courts. Um, It's about four feet high, four and a half feet high. And every so often in the wall stood one of these stones. Okay, so this stone actually came from that wall that was built around the temple. Remember, God's presence lives in that temple among his people. But this stone represents something really difficult for the Gentiles in the land because here's what it said. I'll even show it to you. No intruder is allowed in the courtyard and within the wall surrounding the temple. Whoever enters will invite death upon himself. This inscription was written in Greek and in Latin. And the translation basically means no Gentile may enter past that wall. No Gentile is allowed into the inner courts of the temple. No Gentile is allowed close to the presence of God. No Gentile is allowed to come into those courts and offer sacrifice for sin. No Gentile could come past that barrier wall into the temple courts. And if they did, their death was on their own head. So basically, and I I actually read this today, the Romans kind of controlled what was going on in Jerusalem at the time, and they allowed the Jews to carry this out. So if a Gentile came into the courts, the Jews could take them out. Now, I don't know how often that happened. If I'm a Gentile, I'm probably just going to stay out of there, right? You're not, like, trying to sneak in because the sign tells you you're going to die. You can't go near the presence of God. So I'm sitting in the Istanbul Museum in front of that stone, and it was really powerful. It was actually one of the most powerful moments of my life because as we're sitting there understanding that this stone kept me, a Gentile, away from the presence of God, we read from Ephesians chapter 2. So if you want to turn to Ephesians 2, you can. It's also going to be on the screen. Man, you guys, this is awesome. Ephesians chapter 2. Starting with verse 12. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ as a Gentile. If you look at verse 11, it talks about the Gentiles. You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise. Listen to this, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He who has made the two one 
and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And Paul's talking about this wall that goes around the temple courts. Jesus destroyed the wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, the Gentiles, the pagans, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him, we both now have access to the Father by one spirit. And this is awesome. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Guys, when I stood in front of this stone that kept me away, a Gentile, out of the presence of God, And I heard these words about what Jesus did on the cross to remove the barrier, to take down the wall of hostility, to make a way for me to no longer be a foreigner and an alien, but part of God's family through his blood on the cross. I sat there and cried in front of this stone in this crazy museum where no one was. It was crazy. But I was crying because this changes everything. This changes everything for us. The cross changes everything. Jesus made a way for me, a Gentile, to be part of his family forever. Jesus miraculously fed the Jewish people in the feeding of the 5,000, in the religious triangle, a clear symbol that he, the Messiah, the bread of life, right, His work on the earth was to bring hope and healing and salvation and restoration to the Jewish people. But he goes to the Decapolis, praise God, and he feeds the pagans in Gentile territory. And the bread of life, the Messiah of the world, offers salvation and hope and healing and forgiveness to everyone. He says, my salvation is for everyone. It's for you. You all are invited to be part of my family forever. So this past Sunday at our church, a week ago, uh, it was Orphan Sunday. And they talked a lot about adoption that Sunday morning, and that was really cool because both of our boys are adopted. And um, in Sunday school, Jaden, who's five, went down to his class, and as soon as we walked in, they handed him a paper plate, and there was a whole stack of pictures of kids on the table who were waiting to be adopted. They were waiting for families in Michigan. And so he was supposed to take a picture and put it on a plate, like glue it on a plate, and decorate it. So he did. He picked Walter. This is Walter. He is waiting to be adopted in Michigan. And Jaden decorated his plate with little hearts and stuff. And then what they told him to do was take this plate and set it at our table all week to remember Walter and to pray for him and literally to pray that Walter would find a place at someone's table. 
that some family would say to Walter, we choose you. We have made a place for you. Will you come and be part of our family forever? Will you sit at our table? And so all week, um, Walter's been hanging out with us at dinner (laughs) on the plate, and we've been praying. Jaden and Eli have been praying for Walter that he would find a family. It's been pretty powerful, actually, because we're all like Walter. We all need a place in God's family. We all want a place to belong, to be known, to be cared for. And here's the thing. Jesus made a way for all of us to be part of his family. Jesus sets a place for you at his table. And tonight he says to you, Jew or Gentile, clean or unclean, will you come? Will you come to the place that I've set for you? It's here, it's waiting. There's a place for you, will you come? I've made a way for you to be part of my family forever. I'm going to invite the band to come back. And I'm going to tell you what we're going to do now. Tonight, table set for you. There's a place for you. Jesus has made a way for you. No matter what, (laughs) no matter who you are, no matter how clean or unclean you feel. In a moment, you're all going to get your own paper plate and a marker. And this is totally optional. You don't have to do this. But if you're hearing this tonight and you're like, you know what? I've never been invited to the table by Jesus. I've never felt like I had a place in God's family. I've never decided to join, to come and sit and be with him forever. This is a great chance for you to do that. And all you have to do is write your name on the plate and bring it on up and put it on one of these tables. The other thing you could do is maybe there's someone you know that needs the hope and life and peace and salvation of Jesus. Will you write their name on a plate and will you bring it to the table as a prayer for them? And when you do that, you can take one of these. It's got the Ephesians 2 text that I read on one side and on the other side, a prayer. If you're like, wow, I I don't want to be without hope in the world and without God anymore. I want to come to the table and claim my place and sit and be part of his family forever. There's a prayer on the back that you can pray to do that. Um, While we're singing these next several songs, you can come anytime you want. There's no rush. Um, There will also be students and staff sitting in the back who would love to pray for you. Um, If you just need to process this or want to know more, understand more, we would love to do that with you. Um, But tonight, Jesus says, come. I love you. I died for you. You can be made clean and whole and live a life of hope and peace as part of my family forever. Will you come? I have a place for you at the table. Will you pray with me?
Jesus, we're thankful. We're thankful tonight for your invitation. God, we're thankful that through your work on the cross, you made a way for all of us to be part of your family. Not just for some, not just for the good ones, not just for the people that look good or do all the right things or follow the rules. God, you made a way, you made a place for everyone to be part of your family and to sit at your table as sons and daughters of the King. So God, I pray in these moments that you'd speak to our hearts. God, what do we need to hear? Do we need to accept this invitation? Do we need to pray for people we love to come to the table? God, will you give us courage tonight to, to hear you, to listen to you? God, we're so thankful for your kindness. We're so thankful for your grace and your mercy and your love. And we're thankful for the work you did on this earth to make a way for us to be with you forever. We love you, Jesus, and pray these things in your name. Amen.